His question hung in the air over the disciples. Their nervous answers brimmed with uncertainty. Some say John, others Elijah, Jeremiah, a prophet. But you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? to um, introduce our speaker today. He's the president of Summit Ministries, which is in Manitou, right on the hill. They, every summer, hundreds and hundreds of, of kids, uh, young adults will come through that organization and learn about leadership. They'll learn about apologetics. And Jeff Myers, who's going to speak today, he's the president of that. He's, he's got his earned doctorate in psychology, and uh, he's written many books and published many video series. One of the books he published is Understanding the Times. It's the textbook for a worldview and Christian worldview. So would you join me in welcoming very warmly Jeff Myers. It's really fun to be with you here this morning. I was really moved by um, your baby dedication. Um, look at that little dude. He's got, look at his hair. <laughs> Don't you think he's the perfect Manitou child? Like he's, he's already two-thirds of the way to being a hippie. <laughs> um, I've lived in Manitou for almost six years now. I've been coming here for summer vacations. My family, when I was, was 10, almost 10 moved to Kansas, and the one thing you want to do if you live in Kansas during the summer is not live in Kansas during the summer, so you come to Colorado to Manitou Springs, so I've been coming to Manitou Springs since I was nine years of age, and uh, it was, it was, it's been a lot of fun to, to be able to be here, but when we were considering moving here, I, just a quick story that doesn't really have anything to do with the point at hand, just sort of a Manitou kind of orientation thing. We lived in a house just uh, on the other side of the summit ministries and I like to go outside at night and just sit for a little bit on the, on the front porch in the cool weather. My family was all asleep and a bear walked up the steps. There's a big wall there, a series of steps. He walked up the steps and stood in the yard. So he's looking at me and we're not that far away, probably about this far away. And we're just staring at one another and then I noticed down the sidewalk came one of our summit employees named Andy. I don't know what he was doing out walking at that time of the night, but he was walking around. And of course the wall is about this high, so the bear looks huge from his perspective. Right? And, and the bear turns around and sees Andy. The bear growls at Andy. Andy, unpredictably, growls back at the bear. The bear flinches, <laughs> runs up a tree. But this tree is right next to the roof of the porch. All, he has to, all the bear has to do is climb onto the roof of the porch and he can go in any of the windows where my family members are laying there sleeping. And so as I'm sitting on the porch contemplating what has just happened, then a black bear came into my yard, growled at a man, the man growled at the bear, the bear flinched, and now he's up the tree, and I'm trying to figure out how to get off the porch so I can go up and close the windows so he doesn't come into to my house. At that very moment, I mean, you could not have scripted this better, a hippie walks down the street playing a guitar and singing. This is like 1 o'clock in the morning. And you're just thinking, my first thought was, I'm 
want to live in this place for the rest of my life. It's the strangest place in the world. And it, it really is. Uh, uh, but I have really enjoyed being here. Being here as part of Summit has been really extraordinary. Um, what God's doing through Summit is bringing young adults, 16 to 21 years of age, to Manitou Springs. So we have two other campuses, one in Tennessee and one in California. But bringing them here to help them answer the big questions in life. Is there a God? How would I know? Is the Bible true? Does it have authority? If we bring in world-class philosophers, theologians, ethicists, and so forth to help them grapple with those questions. And then we put them together in small groups so they have a chance to process through and think about what they're learning. They can express their doubts openly. We try to create a safe place where everybody can say what they think needs to be said and ask whatever question they think needs to be asked. In the course of 12 days, God brings about a transformation in the lives of these students. It is really an extraordinary thing to see. And I would welcome you. We'll begin in the middle of May, May 20th or something, whatever that Sunday is, our first day. And welcome you to come up and just see that. If you would enjoy uh, being, being a part of that or seeing some of the lectures, we'd welcome you to come and, come and do that. Well, we're talking about this, the, the, who do you say I am? I am the way and the truth and the life. The, I, I, on my first slide, I had misunderstood the sermon series title, and I put the I Ams of Jesus, which I realize is a dog food brand. So I know that was a little, um, but this is a much better, who do you say I am? This, this, uh, this passage has, has a lot of personal significance to me, and I've been really weighed down in trying to figure out how to communicate about this without just, um, you know, um, overflowing too, too much emotionally because it's, it was really a life-giving passage for me when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But in a lot of ways, it was a life-saving passage for me as well. The story starts a few years ago when we first came to Colorado to be a part of Summit. And things started to go wrong almost right away. I mean, a huge budget deficit, the, the funding wasn't coming in, there was an enormous amount of work that needed to be done. And then right away, right away, we had the Waldo Canyon fire. So we were evacuated. So everybody else was evacuated, and that's fine. But I was evacuated with 300 of my closest friends, <laughs> trying to figure out where to take them all. And we ended up in, in the east side of Colorado Springs, and then up in Colorado Christian University for a couple of weeks. Very difficult, following year first we had the floods. So that was an extraordinary thing for us working through that at Summit. And, and even, even more tragic is just the move had been very, very hard on my family. It's one thing to come here for the summers, but to move all the way across the country, away from your friends, was a very difficult thing. A lot of stress. And to add to all of this, uh, my wife had a cycling accident in which she had a head injury. And after she recovered from the head injury, she just came to me and said, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And left our marriage. And I was reeling. Trying to figure out how to care for the ministry, care for four children, take care of all these things that needed to be done, work through all these difficulties of the budget, all the things that are involved in running a nonprofit, and on top of all of that, working with 1,500 students who desperately need to know Jesus and have a lot of intense questions, whose lives have had all manner of difficulty. It was overwhelming. 
I was able to hold it together for about a year. That's how much strength I have. About a year, I was able to hold it together. Be part of the PTA with my, for my kids' schools. I have four children in four different schools. And so trying to work on all of that, trying to handle all of these different things that were, that were part of it. But I gradually, I just started losing steam. I, I got together for uh, breakfast with my pastor at the time. And he could see that I was struggling, and that's why I wanted to get with him. So I just thought, I'm just so, I'm just so overwhelmed here. And, and he asked me in that breakfast this strange question. He said, are you mad at God? <laughs> and I remember thinking, no, not really. I just don't feel anything at all. Have you been there? I just don't feel anything at all. I just feel numb. So he sensed something was really wrong. So he invited me to come on a hunting trip. Because that's what guys do when they're in stress and frustration, is they blow helpless little birds out of the air. <laughs> so we went up to South Dakota, and all the expenses were paid for this trip. It was really an extraordinary time. And there were a lot of birds up there. I have never seen so many pheasant in all my life. There were 14 guys which you never want 14 men carrying 12-gauge shotguns, shooting them randomly up in the air. You don't want to be around that. But I was, and it was a lot of fun. We, we got our limit the first day by noon. I mean, we were out there for probably two hours, maybe, and we just had all we had shot 42 birds between us. So we came back to have lunch at this lodge. And we ate lunch, and there was nothing else to do. We were done hunting for the day, so most of the guys just settled in to take a nap. Well, I couldn't nap. I wasn't able to rest at all. So I just put on my running shoes and just headed out on the South Dakota dirt roads to go for a long run. And an overwhelming feeling of sadness <coughs> come over me. I really don't know how to describe it. It was just, you know, I only had a fraction of the pain, I guess, in my life that Job had when Job wrote uh, about all the experiences he had and his prayers to God. And the book of Job, though, is proof that God doesn't mind that we ask tough questions about him. I mean, the book of Job might as well be titled, God, what the heck? You know what I mean? Because he asks all these questions and he never... He, God should, says, here's my power, but he never answers the question, why? I got back to the lodge that day. I'd run for about two hours. I was exhausted. And I settled in trying to make sense of all of this. I have to tell you now, I can only see this now, two years removed from that experience. But it was Jesus who met me through these I am statements. So childhood trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And I found myself thinking, God, you had better be there. Jesus, you better be who you say you are because I have got no place else to go. And this passage came back into my mind. I had taught on this. I'm not a preacher or a pastor or a teacher. I had taught on this before just trying to help students understand the influence of Christianity and Western civilization. I taught on it. I knew it. I was very familiar with it. But it came back to me in a whole new powerful way. Where Jesus 
said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. It was in response to a question that Thomas had asked, where Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know the way. Jesus said that to Thomas, a very practical doubter, said, uh, we don't know where you're going, so we don't know the directions. We don't know how to get there. Jesus said, I am the way. There are three statements here. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But I believe if we're to really grasp them and let them soak into our souls, and let the Holy Spirit teach us through these three things, three things that can help us understand not only the meaning of our own lives, but the meaning of all of life on this planet. So let's just take a look at them. What did Jesus claim to be? First of all, he said, I am the way. He said, I am the way. The word the way in scripture is not uncommon. In fact, it's very common. There is a Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus um, said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way life, and those who find it are few. Something you see in the Old Testament, there is a way that leads to life, there is a way that leads to death. If you've read the Bible, you realize, boy, that term, the way, that's everywhere in Scripture. It refers to a moral course of action. The clear idea is this, God has created us and set us on a path in life, and then we divert from that path. Diverting from the path is called sin. But there is that way that we should go in. And when we divert from it, we sin. Jesus died to redeem us, to bring us back to that path. So when Jesus says, I am the way, he's not just saying, I am the way to heaven. He's saying, I am the way to understand what the good life is, the life that is on this path that, is, that God has designed for us. It's a profound thing to think about. I like to think a lot about history, culture. And I've, I've often wondered, does it matter for that the people live this out? In other words, does it make a difference that people follow the way of Jesus? Because the, this passage is quite clear. There are a lot of people who don't. There's a wide path that leads to destruction, a narrow path that leads to life. G.K. Chesterton said, there are many angles at which a man may fall, but only one at which he may stand. This narrow way, does it matter? It's pretty interesting. I'll put a, a quote here by uh, a French philosopher. His name is Luc Ferry. It is, Luc Ferry is, oh, I guess he's French, so we have to say <laughs> But he is an atheist. He's an atheist. He wrote a book to express his worldview called The Brief History of Thought. And in the book, he shocked the whole philosophical world because the very first chapter is how, without Christianity, we would not have Western civilization. That everything we think of that is good in this world we have because of the teachings of Jesus. And he put it this way, it is to Christianity that Western civilization, quote, owed its entire democratic inheritance. But it's not only that. It was Christians who founded hospitals. Are you aware of that? It was Christians who founded higher education, the university system. 
It's Christians who founded what essentially is built up the body of law that leads to human rights, and especially rights for women and children. Because in the Greco-Roman world, women and children had no rights and no place in society. It was Christians who founded modern science. Rodney Stark, a sociologist from Baylor University, was studying this, and he said there are 56 men who were the founders of modern science. 56 of them. Guess how many of them were atheists? Because you would think, like, all of them were atheists, right? One. One out of 56. All the rest of them were Christians. And he said, Rodney Stark said, 60% of them were devout Christians. They could be pastors in churches. It's an extraordinary thing. When you look at the history of the world and realize everything that is good come, came from people who loved Jesus and believed that he was the moral guide for our lives. Second thing, Jesus claimed to be the truth. Claimed to be the truth. The truth um, is the way we can know what is real. So the whole point, or one of the, I guess, main points of life is to discover what is real, right? To, to live it out. We go to school because the teachers promise that they can bring us tools that will help us access reality. So we think reality is pretty important. And truth is the main tool by which we have it. If our grasp of truth is off, we never understand reality. Does that make sense? So today, studies by the Barner Research Group have shown that up to 90% of people in the United States of America say they do not believe there is such a thing as truth. They believe that morality and truth is relative to our personal situation. There is no capital T truth that is out there. I encountered this when I was at the university, my professor in a philosophy class. First thing in the morning, came to us and said, students, the question we're considering today is this. How do you know that you exist? We were all smart enough not to raise our hands. You just never answer a question like that. Professor said, well, come on, somebody's got to have some ideas. So one of the students ventured, well, the philosopher Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. We thought, that kid is not very smart. <laughs> because here it comes, and sure enough, the professor went right after him. He said, but how do you know that you exist? Maybe I made you up five minutes ago. The student, stunned, looked back at the professor and said, well, I remember my life more than five minutes ago. And the professor said, maybe I made you up complete with a memory so that you would think you had a previous life. How would you disprove me? This was at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning. It was not there. We finally got the professor to say, this is the question philosophy that rages in philosophy and has for all time. Is there such a thing as reality? Is our existence really real? It was stunning. He said, essentially he said, most people today are concluding that we can't know anything for sure. We can't really know that we exist. I turned around the room and my classmates were furiously writing in their notes. I think because they just didn't want to look up because they might get called on. What were they writing? I don't exist. <laughs> it bothered me for a little while. Because I thought, what happens when they talk to their mom? Hey mom, hi, how's college? Fine. What are you learning? Um, today I learned that I don't exist. <laughs> One mom asked me, what should I do? My son says that. I said, the solution is really simple. 
Just go to the tuition office and say, my son no longer exists. I want a refund. They will prove your son's existence for you. But seriously, this idea that there is no reality that we can access has become part of the way people in universities are taught today. People say things like, perceptions are reality. Like, there is no real out there. You are the center of your own reality. Is there a more lost place you can be than to be the center of your own reality? Think about that for a minute. I went, oh, I went with my daughter to the country of South Africa, and somebody took us to see this park where there were these rocks that were called, I think they're called basite rocks, and they have a magnetic field to them. If you were to stand on top of that rock with a compass, the compass would just spin around as if you were on the North Pole. Isn't that weird? So let's say you stood on top of one of those rocks and said, the compass is spinning around. Clearly, I am magnetic north. I am the North Pole. Follow me. You would never know where you are if you're the center of your own reality. So, Jesus said, I am the truth. John 8, 31, 32. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. We need to be set free from so many things. We need to be set free from our own perceptions that we are the center of reality. I need to be set free from the, the idea that somehow my pain and struggle and difficulty meant that God was a bully. Third thing, Jesus claimed to be the life. The way, the truth, and the life. The way, a moral course of action, the truth, the way we can know what is real, the life, the key to a meaningful life. No, a lot of people think this means eternal life. And they think it does mean that. But it's clear from the teachings of Jesus that it doesn't just mean life after we die. It means life now. John 10.10 10, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Have it abundantly to the full. As I was working through this whole process of dealing with <clears throat> these three statements came back to me. So Jesus was saying, I'm the way, walk with me. I am the truth. Reality isn't just what you're feeling about your pain. There's a reality that's bigger and deeper. By the way, that reality is that God's answer to the problem of pain is the philosophical argument of a person sent in our place. And then, I am the life. I wondered how much life I had really been missing out on. I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes, although if you look at Google, there are probably 10 different people who claim this quote. But he said, most people die with the music still inside them. That somehow we just don't really grasp what it means to live life. The psychologist William James, not a psychologist, but a quote psychologist, Psychologist William James said that, only, that most people only use a small 
part of the physical and mental resources they have available. Jesus came to broaden our lives by helping us understand and be capable of and have his power to walk in their own path. And by the way, this isn't just, this isn't just a, um, a, something that we can understand in our own context is just three words. Like, this is the perfect sermon, right? The way, the truth, and the life. Three points, and we're done. But the ancient philosophers, Jesus lived in a culture that had been Hellenized. The Greeks had come in and said, our culture is superior, so you will learn Greek, and everybody will learn to do Greek things and to act in a Greek fashion. So Jesus was teaching in that culture. But the ancient Greek philosophers were all asking three questions. What is good, what is true, and what is beautiful? They said, if you can answer those three questions, what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful, you can know how to live your life. And Jesus was saying in this statement, I am the answer to the philosopher's quest. But he's not just the answer to the philosopher's quest. He's the answer to my quest. And my wondering and the pain in my life where are you? Jesus says, I am here as the way and the truth and the life. So I don't know what those things are you are personally facing. This is far more than just a philosophical argument. This is a claim that we can claim this morning with whatever it is, whatever you are facing in your life, Whatever the people you know and love are facing in their lives. It's a claim for each one of us to not only know the right path, to not only know reality, but to live a whole new kind of abundant life. That's all I have to say. What would you like for me to do next? You want me to pray? <laughs> when the pastor does this. you'd like to um, touch while we pray or somebody you, you know would uh, really benefit from knowing this or hearing this or if you'd like to be a comfort to someone you can do that as we pray. God we recognize that a lot of times in life our most pressing questions go unanswered. You showed Job your power, but you never answered the question why. But in Jesus, you showed us the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus, I pray that you will teach us the path that you want us to walk. What reality really is, aside from all the messages our culture gives us to get us to buy things, and then you would set us free through that truth, so we can live full, abundant lives. May it never be said of the people in this room that we died with the music still inside of us. May it be said that we were able to laugh and love, and to encourage, and to build up, and to serve, 
not because of our own energy, but because Jesus for what you did for us on the cross. And Holy Spirit, as we go, we continue to face things outside of this room that are very difficult, maybe even unbearable. Be our guide, be our mentor, be our friend. Walk alongside of us every moment of every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stay in an attitude of prayer. We're going to put a, a prayer we've been praying every Sunday up on the, the screen here. It's the prayer of confession. These are, these are words, but in your heart, don't just say them as words. Say them as a prayer. It's to prepare us for communion. To say this with me. Most merciful, merciful God. God. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.